Open with me to Joshua chapter 1. And let's read those verses that I referred to a few moments ago. Joshua chapter 1. These are the words of the Lord Jehovah to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister. He said in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. And here we have in verses 7, 8, and 9, the rules for a young man to be a great man. There is no other way. There is no training program of the Boy Scouts or the military that can make great men. Only the words of God can make a great man in the sight of God and men. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. That is a great man to have the Lord his God with him wherever he goes. And the way to have that Lord God with him wherever he goes is to keep the law of the Lord in his heart and in his mouth and to meditate therein day and night. And you can see in the last part of verse Seven, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. I want all of you young men to prosper, and I want you to experience what the last part of verse 8 describes. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. A great man, a successful man, a prosperous man is a man that knows the words of God, keeps them in his heart, meditates on them day and night, does not turn to the left, does not turn to the right, but always follows the path of righteousness, truth, and wisdom. And there's only one way to know that path, and it's by the words of God. It tells you when to speak and when not to speak, how to speak and how not to speak. It tells you where to go and where not to go, what to think and what not to think. It tells you how to treat men, women. It tells you how to behave in the house of God. It tells you how to work and get ahead financially. It tells you how to deal with your money. It covers every aspect of your life. But the only way it can benefit you is to read it, remember it, hide it in your heart, meditate upon it, and not turn away from it. It will make you great. It will make you great. And Joshua was great. Joshua was great. Go read the book of Joshua. Read it. He took and destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan and took their 50 cities and they're all named. And you can read the great victories he won because the Lord his God was with him and because he obeyed the Lord here and was courageous and hid the words of God in his heart and in his mind. Last Lord's Day... Sermon number five on the battle for the Bible. We were dealing with the fruit of the Word of God, which proves the King James Bible. 
We don't approach the Bible scientifically because we believe what God told us about the science of the world. That it's science falsely so called. That is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. This is what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Evolution is not a science. It's a science falsely so called. The word science means knowledge. And in 1611, the King James translators knew the word science. Isn't that amazing? You would think that the way people speak about them, that that word has come into existence in the last 50 years. But 400 years ago, the King James translators knew the word science, and they used the word science here because God showed them that's the word they ought to use. He providentially showed them. We do not measure the King James Bible by the science of textual criticism. We measure the Word of God by what the Bible tells us about itself, and that is that it's going to bear fruit wherever it goes. And we have a Bible that you're holding in your laps right now that has 400 years of fruit following it. The other versions come and go like so much snow. They never last. And there's no fruit that follows them. If you look at what's happened in the last 50 years as those versions have proliferated, we have seen an implosion of Christianity in this country, not an expansion of it, not an increase of it. Men are not growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're growing in carnality and all sorts of worldly methods in the churches. And that is accompanying the rise of all these versions. We have a Bible that bore fruit, and it bore fruit in our nation. I beg you to look at those proclamations that I've mentioned a couple times today. They're on the internet. They're in your email box. I sent them to you. They're printed up here. And you can see the drastic difference. The Bible told us that you should, you can know a prophet by their fruits. And so you look for the fruits that follow a man, his ministry, or the Word of God. The Word of God is the Word of prophecy. It's going to bear fruit. We looked at a number of those verses last Sunday. We saw in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that all the other nations of the world would be able to look at Israel and say, that is a wise and understanding people. Why would they think they were wise and understanding? Because they genetically, racially, nationally had higher intelligence than other nations? Not at all. Entirely because they had the words of God. And so everything they did looked incredibly superior to the nations around them. If you read the health provisions of the law of Moses in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, just the health provisions, you will see a nation far advanced beyond what this country was 100 years ago. 100 years ago, wise Americans had not figured out yet that doctors ought to wash their hands between touching a cadaver and helping a woman give birth to a child. They were wondering why in New York hospitals there was such a high percentage of infant mortality and it was very simple they weren't washing their hands but when you read the book of leviticus those men were taught to wash their hands and the priests and to be unclean after touching any dead body 
Very simple. Just one little point. Now, I preached a whole long series on why I believe the Bible. That went through a whole lot of those points. I pulled them out of the Bible, and I showed you in history the name of the doctors. The name of the Jewish doctor in New York City that said, start washing your hands and we will stop infant mortality. And it was true. And it happened. One example of many. And so the rest of the world, filthy, filthy. And don't think you're any better. Right. You know you know what my grandparents did when they got up in the morning and there was a chamber pot beside their bed? Do you know what they did? They went over and opened the window and threw it out in the street. You say, your, your grandparents may have did that, but mine didn't. Well, yours might have just left it in the room. I don't know. But we didn't have laws of sanitation like the Bible prescribed 2,000 years B.C. And so when a nation is practicing those laws, the rest of the world says, what a wise and understanding people. And do you know what people have said about America for the last 200 years? What a wise and understanding people. What a glorious nation. Look at the honor of their courts. Look at the way they treat their government. Look at the way that it works for everyone. And it has worked. And it has worked well. But because the words of God were preached in this nation so that you had men writing things like that 1777 proclamation of thanksgiving. God's Word bears fruit wherever it goes. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. I think we looked at it last time, but I want you to just be remembered where to go in your Bible when we're thinking about the fruit of God's Word. Remember Proverbs chapter 8? is a personification of Lady Wisdom. Where Lady Wisdom goes, certain things follow. Witty inventions are not because some race has greater creativity than other, another race. Some races may have greater creativity than other races, but that is not what makes a distinguishing difference about a nation. I'll tell you where witty inventions come from. It comes from the words of God. God will bless men that have His words. It opens up their minds. When you have a nation, pick any Catholic nation that you want to. Pick the Philippines. Pick Mexico. If you have conditioned children from the time they were born, that that little cracker turns into God when the priest says, hocus corpus meum, If you've convinced them that that little cracker is now God, even though when you break it, it breaks like a cracker, it smells like a cracker, it rubs in your hands like a cracker, it dissolves in your mouth like a cracker, it goes in like a cracker, it comes out like a cracker, even though all that's true, and they tell you that it's God, you have shut down a person's mind. They cannot be creative. They cannot be bold. They cannot be courageous. Because boldness, courage... Creativity are from having your mind opened by the words of God so that you're courageous. Nothing in the Bible against senses like that. God never said that cracker turns into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. He said, This is to remember me by it. That's one example of the difference. You take a Protestant nation, and you know what I think of Protestants? I think they're daughters of the mother of harlots. Right. However, A Protestant does approach the Bible differently than a Catholic does, and a Protestant nation will be different than a Catholic nation, even when they're side by side. Just look at Europe. You can look at Europe and see which nations are Catholic and which nations are Protestant by the power and honor of those nations. Here's the list. 
Proverbs chapter 8. I want you to remember these words. Look at verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth. Do I hate? We're a polite society. We've always been a polite society. We've been a kind society. American society. Yes, I'm applying these verses to America when the King James Bible was protected, promoted, and preached and believed in every pulpit. When you went into a bookstore in 1777, how many Bible versions were there on the shelf? One. One. How many colors? (laughs) One. It was a King James Bible. What was the number one bestseller in the most read book? Same thing. King James Bible. What was second, third, and fourth? Do you know? Fox's Book of Martyrs. Pilgrim's Progress. McGuffey's Readers. McGuffey's Readers are based on what book? Teaching children how to read. Today's, today's high school students couldn't handle McGuffey's Readers. The Bible. It's based in the Bible. The King James Bible. When Noah Webster made his dictionary in 1828, what did he use as the source document for the use of words? The King James Bible. Plus he had his own. Bible. And look at the, look at the, look at the things that follow with wisdom where wisdom goes. Verse 14, counsel is mine. And sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me. Yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold. Yea, than fine gold. And my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Riches, wisdom, prudence, sound judgment, strength, honor, counsel. All these things follow the words of wisdom and where wisdom goes based on the words of God, because wisdom is found right here in this book. And our nation has been known for those things above all other nations as a light in a dark place. And a few other sister nations were close seconds behind us while they held to the Word of God. There's a lot that could be said on that subject. I'd like to say a lot, but I already told you that I'm limiting myself. No wonder Demetrius in the city of Ephesus couldn't stand the apostles and their preaching of the words of God because it destroyed their craft. It says he got all the craftsmen together and said, we are going to lose our income if this man is allowed to preach unfettered because he's turning men away from Diana of the Ephesians. The preaching of God's Word bears fruit and changes men's lives, families, and it changes nations. And where the words of of God have gone, it has changed nations. And where God withheld His words or where a nation rejected His words, they were left in ignorance. And there are still many of them today. They've never seen the light of day. 
The gospel has only made very, very small inroads in them, and they are still in ignorance. You would think they would want to join the 21st century, but they don't know how. And it's because they, have, they do not have the light of Holy Scripture, which changes men's lives. They themselves are referred to as third world nations because there is no light there. That is not, that is not a national or a genetic or a racial difference, though God does deal differently with every nation. It's where the words of God go. Don't think your ancestors were the brightest people on planet earth. It's just that God in His mercy sent His words to your ancestors. And that's the difference that it made. Demetrius, they couldn't stand the fact that the Apostle Paul was turning the world upside down. Now does that mean that the globe was actually... Or does he mean the way of living and the way of thinking and the way of religion was being greatly altered by the Apostle Paul preaching the words of God? A few white outcasts of Europe landed on the shores of this nation and there were Indians here that hadn't figured out anything. We went over that. But they arrived here and God blessed them because this is what they had, the words of God. The others had no words of God. They didn't want the words of God. They had the great spirit and a happy hunting ground. It's a tremendous difference. And it's not because Europeans are greater than Native Americans or American Indians. It's because they had the words of God. And that's where we give the thanksgiving. When someone says, What's Amer- what made America great? It's the preaching, the promoting, and the protecting of God's words. Just like it made Israel great. When Israel was obeying the words of God, the greatest nation on earth, even though it was so small. When they disobeyed, they would get pounded. We're disobeying now. No one cares about the words of God anymore. And look what's happening to our nation in its Christianity, in its morals, in its power, in its strength, in its riches. Measure it any way you wish. We're in a decline, just like the Roman Empire went into a decline before it was overthrown. Bad fruit follows the new versions as sure as thorn bushes bear thorns. All you have to do is look around. Higher criticism, lower criticism, textual criticism, attacking the Word of God has become vogue and the thing of seminaries in the last 150 years as those versions have come out. When England chose in 1881 to overthrow the words of God and let Westcott and Hort, two men, on a committee for 11 years sneak their personal Greek New Testament into that committee and overthrow the Word of God. Look what's happened to that nation ever since. It's a laughing stock of what it used to be. And it's the same thing in our nation. You know, now there are not speech writers that would even be capable of writing like our fathers did 200 years ago because they can't even think in those terms because those sound words are lost. The wholesome words of the Bible are lost. They're over here thanking firemen on Thanksgiving Day. What in the world are they talking about? Thanksgiving Day isn't for thanking firemen. Thanksgiving is thanking the Almighty God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, for blessing this nation in every way from beginning to end. You look at that difference and that is the fruit. And we're just, we're just hitting the high points and we're giving broad strokes to the fact that fruit follows the words of God. And we know the King James Bible is God's Word because wherever it's gone, wherever it's been preached, wherever it's been believed, promoted and protected, those nations have been blessed whose God is the Lord and whose words are the true words of God.
and we are no longer blessed, even though they're pumping out versions one every six months or so, we are no longer blessed like we once were. Because those words are not the words of God. You need to look at it. Some of you do not have in your head a timeline of 1881 was the first English version coming out in an attempt to overthrow the King James Bible. 1881 in England, copyrighted for 20 years. As soon as we reached the day of being able to do it ourselves, out came the American Standard Version in 1901. There wasn't another one till 1952. Then it began accelerating. 1952 was the Revised Standard Version. The 1970 was the New American Standard Version. The 1978 was the New International Version. Now we've got the English Standard Version, the Holman Christian Standard Version, the New Century Version, the New Living Version. We've got more version, version, version. Are we getting better as a nation? Are we getting better as Christians in this country? Not a chance. The religion of everyone is watered down. Their faith is watered down. Their concept of doctrine, their steadfastness to hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints, to the, to the saints has been broken down because there is no more reliance on the words of God. It's, is there some new novel for me to read? Like the message. The message is not a Bible. The message is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase about the Bible. And that's very popular today. And they're making a whole lot of money off it. Go try to buy one for five bucks. The cheapest message you'll ever find is $15 at least. And the millions that they're publishing of that book, they do not need to sell it for 15 bucks. It's a money-making venture. And right now it's the rage, so you charge what the market will bear. But that's another point that I have later on about the motives of the different versions. Instead of preaching with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no more preaching like that today. The Bible says, my word, the, the Lord said about His own word, my word is like a hammer and fire. Right. But who preaches like hammer and fire today? There is no preaching like a hammer and a fire. It's little pep talks like you, like you would give to campfire girls. I mean, the average preacher today ought to have a Girl Scout troop. Because all he's doing is giving them little pep talks. There's no hammer break. Do you know what the Lord said? My word is like a hammer and a fire that breaks the rock in pieces. The Bible says in the New Testament that preaching is making war against your mind. When I listen to their sermons, there's no war being waged at all. They're just stroking and coddling everyone. Why is that difference? The words of God are gone. Those men are standing in pulpits and they've picked some new version that has come out like the message. I'm talking about Rick Warren in Saddleback Community Church in California. The message is only a few years old. Rick's been changing Bible versions all along. We have a sister in here who read The Purpose Driven Life. I think it was 18 versions she found in reading The Purpose Driven Life or 15 versions. It doesn't matter. He has no solid foundation for his feet, nor solid foundation for his mind. Nor does he have a fire and a rock to a fire and a, a hammer to break in pieces the rock. So we can see that difference. Where did that difference come from? The words of God have been taken away from our generation. The average Christian today hardly believes anything dogmatically. They hardly believe anything dogmatically, but this whole book is dogmatic. This is the way it is and there's no other way. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way. When was the last time you saw a message like that on television that even had any of that 
as its philosophy or as its con- as the concept being presented that God's word is absolutely right in every way every other way is absolutely wrong because the words of God have been taken away we look for the fruit you know last lord's day we rejoiced in the fact that america was a wilderness inhabited by savages and in just a few years this nation burst forth on the scene of this earth as one of its great nations how in the world can you take outcasts from Europe whose nations that they came from had a couple thousand years head start, bring them to a wilderness where they have no advantage, no cities, no army, no navy, nothing, and they explode into prosperity and they are known for counsel, wisdom, riches, strength, prudence, sound judgment. How does that happen? By the grace of God. Don't ever blame, don't ever say it's natural resources. Take a look at the Soviet Union to some time and measure their natural resources against America's. Measure their square mileage of good territory for agriculture or any other. Measure their gold. Measure their uranium. Measure their oil. Measure what that nation has and they can't do anything with it. Their people barely survive. Why? Because they made a choice as a people. We hate the words of God. We hate God, in fact. In fact, we won't let you talk about Him because we are an atheistic nation. And look at the difference. You say, well, they're able to send up spaceships. Yes, because they took ours and copied them, made a few little differences on exit of this Earth's atmosphere and re-entry, but everything else they can't do. They don't know how to farm. They don't know how to feed their people. They don't know how to make bread. No one in the world wants to immigrate to the Soviet Union. No one in the world. They have no great big statue of Lenin saying, give me your huddled masses. Because everybody knows if you're a huddled mass in Russia and they don't like you, they're just going to shoot you. Now, does that sound like sound wisdom? Stalin did it. Lenin did it. Khrushchev did it. Look at the difference. They're larger and they had a couple thousand year head start. And what did it get them? Nothing. It is the words of God. We are not better as a people. We have the words of God and we have God to be thankful for. Look at, just take a globe and spin it and stop on a nation and you will be able to know if that nation is prosperous, what degree of honor they give to the words of God. The argument of words. I can go over this one quickly. We believe that every word of God is pure, don't we? We believe that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So any version that treats the words of God lightly, we don't want to have anything to do with those those Bibles. We have, I've shown you. Well, let me test you and see if I did. Since my mind slipped, it slips me right now. What were the eight examples in the New Testament, of Jesus and Paul arguing from a single word. Now, some of you had a little formula for remembering all eight of them. And it was a good little formula. How many? Two in Matthew. What chapter? Two in John. So there's four by Jesus, two in Matthew, two in John. I need the references, though. What chapter in Matthew? What chapter in Matthew did Jesus answer the scribes and the Pharisees so well it says they durst not ask Him any more questions after that? Chapter 22. 
So there's two of them there. One is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the other is, what think ye of Christ? Why did David call him Lord? John has two of them. What chapters? Where did Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am? John chapter 8, verse 58. Where did He say, the Scripture cannot be broken because the Old Testament has to have the word God's? 10.35. John 10.35. There's the four G. Though Jesus argued doctrine from single words. Do you understand the importance of that? If He argued doctrine from single words, we cannot play with the words by paraphrasing it into our words. We have to stick with His words. What if we paraphrase John 10.35 or Psalm 82 verse 1 and Psalm 82 verse 6 where the words God's is? We said, you know, that's, that's misleading people. I think we'll use the word ruler or leader of the people instead of God's. What if we paraphrase it to make it easier for a person to understand? We corrupt the cross references and the connection of words. Right. Okay, where are the four that Paul used? There's two in one book and two in another book. Two in Galatians, two in Hebrews. Galatians 3.16, the Old Testament had better say seed, not seeds. It cannot have a plural back there. It's got to have a singular because the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham are in Jesus Christ. You young men... This is how Jesus and Paul used the words of God. They argued doctrine from individual words. Therefore, the Bible cannot be just the message of God. It cannot be just the idea that God wants to get across because He uses words and we're to be able to depend on each word. We're to live by every word. Every word is pure. If we add to His words, He's going to add the plagues of this book to our lives. If we take away from those words, He's going to take away our portion out of the book of life. The words. Therefore, all paraphrases are wrong. They're not a Bible in any sense of the word. Paraphrases like the living Bible. Kenneth Taylor, Chicago businessman, I've told you about him. 30 years ago, the hippie generation wrote the Living Bible. He intended it for children. Billy Graham, realizing that everyone that went to his crusade was a child, promoted that Bible to everyone. The Living Bible was sold by the millions back in the 70s. And it's a paraphrase. It's taking the words of God and putting them in my words, and I'm going to write down what I think God was saying. And so you, you destroy the word integrity of the Bible. What's the modern paraphrase? The message. Instead of Kenneth Taylor, it's Eugene Peterson. The message. Then we've got to Listen, I know some of this may bore you, but I don't care. I want your young people to understand this. Amen. And there's an answer for all their questions. There's two ways of translating in their opinion. Formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is, if there's a Greek word, we give it an English word. Dynamic equivalence is, if there's a Greek word... We think about what it might mean and we put it in our own words. That's the NIV. The NIV uses those terms. The NIV says we are in a, a dynamic equivalent translation. We've given you the equivalent of what God said in modern speech. When you do that, you're altering the words of God. Amen. So any paraphrase... Any dynamic equivalent translation cannot be the Word of God by the very virtue of the fact that God said, my book is based on words. 
And every word is pure. And every word is important. Don't add. Don't take away. And Jesus and Paul showed us eight examples of arguing from individual words. Any version intending to convey the message of God's Word is totally inadequate. We need His words. His very words. And so when it says rod, we believe that it says rod. When it says back, we believe back. We go through the whole Bible that way. When it says much water, we believe there was much water there and it wasn't to feed their camels. Because it says He was baptizing there because there was much water. All the way through, words. The argument of contradiction. Oh, Proverbs chapter 8, you're there. Beautiful, we can save time. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 8. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. God is saying here that all the words that come out of my mouth, all the words that are in my book, all the words of Lady Wisdom are in righteousness. There is nothing forward. That's corrupt, wrong, opposite, contrary, contradicting. There's nothing perverse in the words of God. They're all going to agree. You're not going to have contradictions. John 10.35 says, The Scripture cannot be broken. If I can take a book that calls itself a Bible and break it, and we've already done that, haven't we? Mark 1.2, remember? You're all going to remember Mark 1.2. All the Bibles say, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but where is it really written? Malachi 3.1. See, you just broke that book. You can turn it around and say, I just broke your book. I just broke it. I just broke the poor little thing. And you know what? If I broke it, it can't be Scripture. Because Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. And do you know how He meant that? The Old Testament has the word God's, and you can bet that it has the word God's. But Isaiah didn't write Mark 1-2. Malachi wrote it. Oh, it's a lot of fun. You all need an NIV. I'll even pay for it. I love to find a Christian at the bank. Can we have lunch together today? Sure. I'd love to have lunch with you, but they didn't know what was going to happen there. I wanted to read their Bible with them. The NIV. And slide it over to them and say, what does that footnote say about Mark 1-2? Does your Bible say that that's a quote from Malachi, but in the text it says it's from Isaiah? I just broke your Bible. What do you think about that? Jesus said Scripture cannot be broken. Now that's fun. Listen, can you think of anything more fun than that? I can't. Six flags over Georgia. Did you say that, Anthony? Come on. Breaking someone's book that they're calling a Bible is fun. It's pure pleasure. It's honoring to God. And then I would show them the King James Bible and say, look what's happened. You know what? Most don't care. I learned that a long time ago. Most don't care. It wouldn't matter how plainly you showed it to them. If it's going to cost them anything, they're not going to follow it. And it would cost them something to repudiate the NIV in a modern church. This is the argument of contradiction. If I can find a contradiction in a book that calls itself a Bible, it ain't the words of God because there are no contradictions in it. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. There's lots of, I hope that you know for each of these points that I'm making, there's a whole lot more in the outline, but I'm just trying to hit the high points. We looked looked at Proverbs 8 where it says, there's nothing forward or perverse in the words of God. The words. There's nothing forward or perverse. I I told you about John 10.35 that the Scripture cannot be broken. You're going to like this one. 
You're going to like this one. Jesus... I'm in the wrong testament. Moses is telling the people of Israel that God is going to raise up a prophet to them like himself. And that prophet would be Jesus. Now watch this. The last three verses. Verse 20. Let's get verse 19. This is... This is Moses giving a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Now listen, read, watch closely. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? Verse 22. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. God said, I'm going to raise you up a prophet like to Moses, and you're going to hear him. If you don't hear him, he's going to require it of you. When this prophet speaks, you're going to have to obey him. And if you, if any other prophet speaks in my name or in the, in the name of any other God, put him to death. I've only got one that's coming and it's the Lord Jesus Christ in this sense of the word. And he knew what question they were going to ask. How will we know when it's your prophet speaking? He said, if, if a prophet ever says anything that doesn't come to pass, you know that it's not of me. Do not be afraid of that prophet, no matter what he might be claiming, no matter how impressive he might sound. That is not my word, because my word always comes to pass. And so, therefore, we have another rule about a Bible. If there is an error or a lie in a Bible, it cannot be the words of God. We don't have to be afraid of it, nor intimidated by it, nor threatened by it. It doesn't matter, because it's got a flaw in it, and it gives itself away as not being the words of God. This is a rule of how to measure a prophet. These are their fruits. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Remember I've shown you that the new versions don't know who killed Goliath. They give credit to Isaiah for a Quotation from Malachi. Remember, they didn't know how long it took to take the land of Canaan. They said it was 450 years when it was only five. They didn't know how old Saul was. I've shown you those things. There's more of them. I want to give you two right now and show the importance of words and how that this is a prophet whose words do not come to pass, whose words are not true. And this is an NIV that I have in my hands. But I want you to look at your Hebrews 3.16 very closely while I read their words for Hebrews 3.16. The context here is God swore in His wrath against the unbelieving Israelites so that they could not go into the land of Canaan. But there were two that He let in. What were their names? Joshua and Caleb. Everyone knows that Joshua and Caleb got into the land of Canaan. Not everyone died in the wilderness because two men made it in. You look closely at the words of God and see how important words are. Hebrews 3.16 Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? 
Who were they who heard and rebelled? Who was it that heard Moses and rebelled against him? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? This Bible says everyone that Moses led out of Egypt heard and rebelled and didn't make it into the land of Canaan. Does yours alter those words just a little bit to say that it wasn't all of them? This one says that it was all of them. I have broken this book that claims to be a Bible. It's the NIV. It's not the words of God. Now listen, you might not read your words that carefully, but when the Bible tells us that Jesus and Paul argued from individual words, I will take that King James Version and show that it is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament. This one is contradicting itself. If I go back to Joshua and Judges, I find out that Joshua and Caleb did make it into the land of Canaan. But in Hebrews 3.16, they contradict themselves. They have something forward. They have something perverse in their Bible. This prophet, his word didn't come to pass. Don't be afraid of this thing, no matter how popular it might be. You have the words of God. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. If I had another life, well, there's lots of things I'd do with another life. But one, if I had another life, one of the things I would do is I'd read this all the time looking for more of these jewels. Because when I find one, I just get so excited. Like the one I just showed you. Now, that may not mean anything to you. But see, it's God helping a little babe know that the NIV is not His Word. And so I get very excited that the God of heaven would show a little babe like me that the NIV is not His Word. Here's another one. I've got to give you a little background. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul said this. It says it in both versions. There were 430 years from God making the promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless all nations through you and your seed. You know what that means. Jesus Christ. There were 430 years from that promise being made until the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. 430 years. Galatians 3.17 tells us that. And other places tell us. 4.30. Abraham was 75 years old when he was given that promise because Genesis 12 tells us that. Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Isaac was 60 when Jacob was born. Jacob was 130 when he went down into Egypt. Keep those things in mind, okay? That's 215 years in case you weren't doing the math. So if there were 215 years from Abraham getting the promise until Jacob went down into Egypt, how long were they in Egypt? 215, right? 430 minus 215? Are you with me? Look in your Bibles at Exodus 12:40. This is <laughs> And they call this scholarship. Listen to this. Now you watch yours carefully. You think commas aren't important? You watch your Bible. Exodus 12:40. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. I'll read it again from the false version. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Somebody read your version to me. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. 
What did Israel do according to that Bible for 430 years? They sojourned. That's right, they didn't have a permanent living place. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then 215 years down in Egypt. This is forward and perverse. This is a contradiction. This prophet is not to be feared because he's wrong. It is the proof of contradictions that God gave us to show us this is not His Word. You hold your word. Because we've got Galatians 3.17 that has got to match up with Exodus 12.40. They were 215 years in the land of Canaan and 215 years in the land of Egypt. We could cover the argument of fools. God has never, God has said He would shame fools. He would expose fools. He wouldn't use fools. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where is the disputer of this world? Where is the scribe? Notice what terms he used, what professional titles he used to ridicule. Where is the scribe? That's a man who spends his life copying God's word. Where is the scribe? I have made them fools. Where is the disputer of this world? That's a textual critic. I've made them fools. So we could look at the argument of fools, compare the Bible versions on the attitude that the translators had about their version, and see which group was humble and which group was proud about their accomplishments. And you see the difference and you know it couldn't have come from these modern translations. These men want their names. You Find me a list of names of the King James translators. Find me a Bible that they put their name on. Aren't you tired of hearing about the Schofield Reference Bible? How in the world could a man ever let his name be put on a Bible? Or inside the front cover. Or his notes all over the pages telling you what it's supposed to mean. With his name broadcast. It's the humility that God honors. He's always honored humility and he will not honor pride or those that come to him in arrogance. How about the argument of history? Do we have an argument from history? Did Daniel see a vision of the four world empires? Did he see a little horn coming out of the Roman Empire? Did he see that little horn making war with the saints of God? Did he see that? This is history, an argument from history. Do you want your Bible to come from the little horn or the people persecuted by the little horn? Is there any question in your mind? That's Daniel 7. 2 Thessalonians 2 backs it up and says, That little horn has been deluded by the devil, and I've given them over to strong delusion so that they should believe a lie. In Revelation 12, there's a group of people that are called to be the remnant of the woman who are hiding in the world. They have the commandments of God, and coming after them is this great dreadful beast of the Roman Empire and the false churches that would come out of her. Which Do you want your Bible coming from that Roman Empire? Or do you want it part of that little persecuted group that survived for 1,260 years because God protected them? Amen. This is the argument from history. Do you want the Bible of the martyrs? Or do you want the Bible of those that made the martyrs? Give me the Bible of the martyrs. Give me the Bible of the churches. That's another argument. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I've got... The argument of churches. We want the Bible that was believed and read in churches. You can even look at the argument of ability. Go compare the translators of the King James to any other group of translators. It's like the difference between light and darkness, day and night. How about the argument of precision? Those people tell you that God gave His words in Hebrew and Greek and therefore we ought to be 
slavishly obedient to Hebrew and Greek. If that's true, then why do they take away the these and the thous from our English Bible? Because it's only these and thous that you can express Hebrew and Greek, which has a difference between the singular second person pronoun and the plural second person pronoun. We say you. Hey, you. You know, when I say, hey, you, you don't know if I'm talking to you or the you next to you or all the you's in here. Because you is singular and plural. But in the Bible, we have thee, thou, and thy, and thine. And that's singular always. And when, we, when the Lord wants to be plural, He's ye, you, or your. You say, that's a minor point. Oh, is it really? They're the ones that say we ought to be loyal to the Greek and Hebrew. There's only one language that can translate Hebrew and Greek in English, and it's a hybrid language. It's a language of the King James translators who brought back the these and thous of high English and incorporated it into this Bible so that it could accurately translate the Hebrew and the Greek. Now, do you want to read, know something really interesting? Come up, grab one of those 1611 King James Bibles and read their epistle dedicatory to King James. That's as formal as men could ever get in, the, in, in writing a dedication to King James. Do you think they used these and thous in that? No, because these and thous were not a part of the English language spoken or written at that time. Go read their letter to the, to the readers. They don't use these and thous. But when they did God's Word, they used these and thous and pulled them from high English because that's the only way to be able to give the precision of the pronouns that are in Hebrew and Greek. You have a incredible book in your hands and they want to take away the these and the thous while they tell us we're being more accurate with the Hebrew and the Greek. Are you following me? They're liars. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. This is a hybrid English. This is not Elizabethan English. This is not Shakespearean English. This is not Old English. This is Bible English. This is an English that was made for the purpose of translating the King James Bible. It's, it's precious. It's the argument of precision. They take away the these and the thous and the Bible is no longer precise. They leave the these and the thous in like our English Bible and it's reverent. They're taking away the these and the thous and reducing the Bible down to read like a newspaper. And they're going to take away all the gender. God's going to be your parent before you know it. There's no, in some of the new versions, there's no more him, he. It's they and them. And they're going to take away God as your father and he's going to be your parent so that they can line up with the Metropolitan Community Church. Does anybody know what the Metropolitan Community Church does when they're not in the pew? They're sodomites. It's a whole denomination of sodomites. And they're the ones that have already declared that God is our parent. We could look at the argument of nations. The argument of nations. Where did the other versions come from? They came from Greece, Egypt, and Germany. Not a, a spiritual good thing could not come out of Germany. It's impossible. Germany is the most profane European Western nation that has ever existed. They have the most skeptical, evil, profane philosophers that have ever come around. They are the God-is-dead society. They are the German rationalists who want to explain everything naturally and deny the supernatural. That's where higher criticism, lower criticism, and textual criticism came from, was Germany. Germany does not have a conscience. Anyone knows that. All you have to do is look at recent world history. They do not have a religious conscience because it was killed. They killed it themselves. 
And yet that's where the new versions come from. Go look at where the rules for textual criticism come from. Go look at where the, the critical apparatuses are made. They come out of Germany. Look, and they trace their, they trace their manuscripts that they use out of Egypt. God never blessed that nation. God sent His gospel in different directions. And so you can look at nations and see where they came from. And the new versions come out of Germany where there is a skeptical God-is-dead philosophy toward everything that is supernatural, different from other nations, profane among the European nations. An argument of motive. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. You can argue the motive of why the Bibles were produced. Do you know why the King James Bible exists? Because in 1604, when King James I of England, who was the sixth of Scotland, took the throne he was met by a group of ministers that asked him to please give them a Bible that would end all the confusion of the virgins that existed at that time. They were churches and preachers asking for a Bible to end the confusion that the common people had about the Bible. And he answered that call. Why are there virgins today coming out every six months? There's not a single saint, not a single church, Not a single pastor asking for them for a real need. They are book publishers out to make money. And the Bible tells me that the love of money is the root of all evil. And they just keep coming out with these new versions every few months, even though the differences between these versions are insignificant. But just like Detroit, and just like the clothing industry, if we make a few alterations on a name brand... There's a whole group of people out there that will just keep buying the new thing so that they can be wearing the latest, they can be driving the latest, and they can be reading the latest in their churches. It's the love of money. You say, how can you know men's hearts? Well, if I can't gauge covetousness and greed in the part of any man, then much of the Bible just falls by the wayside. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 18 that the rulers of a people ought to hate covetousness. If you can't tell whether a man hates covetousness or is covetous, then how would you ever pick such leaders? You can easily judge. What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And are they making money from it? If they're not covetous, then why are they producing versions that no one has asked for? No one's asked for these versions. Why are they doing it? Number two, why are they all copyrighted? So that no one else can use them. Why is the New King James Version copyrighted by Thomas Nelson Publishers? Why are they sold as high as a price that the market will bear? Why aren't they giving them away? Why aren't they selling them at cost? (coughs) If they're not covetous and doing it for greed. Why are they using the same methods to market the Bible as they do any other carnal merchandise? Why are they the revenue-producing property of publishing houses, and why aren't they given over to churches? Why are they sold beside other translations that defy and disagree with them? Thomas Nelson Publishers comes out with a new King James Version and says, all we're trying to do is update it just like the King James Version has been updated a couple times before, which is a lie. They brought in other Greek texts, and they changed the new King James Version and that's a subject for a whole other time. I'll be ha- Just go to our website, and there's a little document there that will help you through the changes in the New King James Version. But Thomas Nelson Publishers sounds so pious in the preface to the New King James Version that we love our English version, and we would not want to change it. 
and all we want to do is update the language, then why are you copywriting that book and selling it right beside other Thomas Nelson copyrighted versions that have the Apocrypha buried within the Old Testament and that are Catholic Bibles? They sell the New American Bible. With the Apocrypha in the Old Testament, they don't care about any version. All they care about is their bottom line. All of these evidences are evidences that a man reading the Bible is able to figure out the love of money is the root of all evil, and all this, this proliferation of modern translations is a love of money because that's why the publishing houses are producing them. These are not pastors writing Bibles. These are not churches needing Bibles. These are not saints wanting Bibles. These are publishing houses. Do you know there's over 10 NIV versions? There's NIV for little boys, grandpa's age. There's NIVs for little girls. Yours is blue and yours is pink. There's NIVs for teenage boys. There's NIVs for teenage girls that look like Seventeen magazine. Go to a bookstore and check them out. It's not because they love the saints of God and the house of God. It's not because they're trying to protect and earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It's because they're in it to make money. Whenever you hear about the Apocrypha, if anyone ever brings up a question to you and says, doesn't that original King James Version have the Apocrypha in it? You say, yes, it does. What Bible are you promoting? And no matter what version they say, every single modern version is based on a manuscript called Vaticanus that's in the Pope's library and Sinaiticus that's mostly in the British Museum, but it's also in St. Catherine's Monastery in Mount Sinai. Here's the issue. They're attacking you about the Apocrypha. That King James Bible over there knew that the Apocrypha was not Scripture. If you open it up, it says, The Holy Bible containing the Old and the New Testaments. It knows exactly what Scripture is. The Old Testament and the New Testament. In between, which is where the Apocrypha came from, that 400-year period of time between Malachi and Matthew, they stuck it in there for extra reading. And at the top of every page, they put the word Apocrypha, which means false writings. Four times. They knew it wasn't Scripture. They didn't expect you to consider it Scripture. It was just there for extra reading. And you asked me, is it, is it valuable extra reading? Yes, it is. First and second Maccabees describe the history of Israel from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. It describes the king of the north and the king of the south in detail. You don't need it, but it is helpful information if you want to read the history of what took place there. Here's the point. They're attacking your Bible. Your Bible had the Apocrypha in it originally. Yes, but the translators told us that it wasn't part of the Bible, it wasn't part of God's Scriptures, and it wasn't, cons- it wasn't to be considered inspired writings. It was the false writings of men, and it was only stuck in as additional help to the reader. Right. What Bible are you promoting? And no matter what they say, remind them that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus have the apocryphal books buried in the Testaments where you cannot see them. They are not separated at all. Sinaiticus is so bad. In the New Testament, it's got two epistles called the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas. In the New Testament, they have no integrity at all. All they're trying to do is attack the absolute and final authority that you have in a King James Bible. They cannot stand an absolute and a final authority, and we love it. That is all for today. Love your Bibles. Read your Bibles. 
believe and, and say with David, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. May the Lord bless us to that end.